But isn't it terrible, all these politicians telling us that we have to save ourselves from ourselves they have to save us from ourselves because we're all <clears throat> we're all like mindless bigots they're so condescending and arrogant they don't realize they're, they're writing their own destruction yeah. before our eyes it's incredible to see blair has no idea how much of like reverse midas touch he's got right now every anything he touches is going to turn to shit unless it's a bank i think it's it's spreading though i think it's like a general theme that's happening i watched a great interview earlier today between milo yiannopoulos and bill maher yeah did you watch that yeah, I went into watching it completely even-handed, and I came out thinking that Maya guy was a real asshole. If anything, he's, he's the a dick. he's he's the phobe because he yeah. said like you're just a little whiny fag or something. He said like oh Bill Maher, yeah, yeah. Bill Maher, I called him a fag, and you could tell when he oh, said but when, when, but when he said he knows fag, Milo's level. Though, I know, but you know what I, mean? like, I saw that when my, Maya said fag, he really like oh, he was so excited to be able to say that word quite well. Bill Maher, you can tell Bill Maher gets Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah, he's yeah. not a serious conservative thinker. He, he, he's he, trying to start a conservative he, he movement. Did, he didn't he's give, just out for himself. He wants yeah. to make a name for himself. He's a bit of a clown. He says some. He did, wacky, hyperbolic things. He didn't let Milo get a comeback, though, on the Trump question at the very end. Well, Bill Maher's point was they always take the bait. And that's what Milo does. He just throws out bait every it's like, week. It's like and this, they always take it. It's like this Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Tom, Dick and Hyman show with me, Tom, but still no Hyman. Any idea who he is, Tim? No idea, but I'm here, so... That's right, joining me once again is Tim, and on this week's show, we're reviewing a film centering on the topics of free speech, the pursuit of truth, strength in the face of adversity, and, well, Holocaust denialism. The Matrix. (laughs) We'll also be discussing a topic that seems to draw a lot of ire these days, that of being multiculturalism. But before that, we've got to deal with the sanctimonious preachy celebrities, as it's that time of year. It's the award season. like the award season tim i used to watch award shows i used to enjoy the like the, the, glitz, the glitz and glamour the celebrity who's who's wearing what and uh my favorite part always used to be the the way the camera would would cut to the other nominees when they, just lost when they just lost yeah. you know and you'd see they'd have their best game face on trying to prove that they weren't upset i just used to like it when people go up accept the award say thanks thank their mum thank their dad as they goldfish but now it seems they need to uh give us a sermon mm. and tell us stuff well yeah. really i just want actors to entertain me don't they have a platform to spread an important message no they've they've got a psychological trait where they like to show off and I, I can say this because I, 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 I've done a bit of acting in my time. I, I know from that experience that, that most actors, however intelligent and art- articulate they are, yeah. they're all slightly mental. <laughs> so yeah, another award ceremony, another controversy. Yay! Adele won a Grammy for Best Album, beating out Beyonce and Justin Bieber and Drake and Sturgill Simpson. Who's Sturgill Simpson? I have no idea. I haven't heard of them before you. But that's, you know, it wasn't just Beyonce who lost. <laughs> Drake lost as well. Yeah, well, well best album, that's, that's really the, the golden ring, isn't it, that everyone wants to clasp. That's, that's the main award that everyone cares about. I was actually very happy this year's Grammys, uh, Megadeth won the best heavy metal album. What about Adele, Beyonce? The public persona of Beyonce gets my nerves a bit. But I, I think she's a really good musician. Some of her songs are, I'd count among some of my favourite, definitely. Really? I don't know. I mean, 
a lot of what Beyonce does is kind of forgettable, to be honest. And there is the whole... They're like catchy pop songs yeah. that you wouldn't listen to it 20 years and down of course, the line. And of course, you know, her each one of her songs is like a sort of military operation. It's got like about 15 different writers and... It's, it's, Wait, it's, does Adele write her own? It's a real product. No, she, she's a modern pop star. I'm sure she writes her own stuff and... Because um, I listened to both albums last night. I gave one playthrough to each of them. Mm. And fair enough, you can't judge an album on one playthrough. But I would say pound for pound, I thought Adele's album was a bit better. Yeah. Not miles, light years better, do you know what I mean? But it was better. She's certainly got a much more unique voice. So Adele does stand out more for that. Um, I like the fact she's sort of a, a Tottenham girl as well, so sort of fairly local. <laughs> she always swears. I don't like that, really. <laughs> I think that really, you know... She was doing the, um, the tribute to George Michael. Mm. You know, she was like off-key. But, of course, Beyonce didn't win. Generic white woman won instead, which naturally led to accusations of racism yeah. at the Grammys, yeah. of course. This seems to be quite a common thing that happens in America. In, like when there's like a, an upset or an unexpected result, it'll be blamed on sort of racism. Like the last one immediately before the Grammys was actually the Super Bowl. The, the guy supported the, Trump, the quarterback. Tom Brady, I think his the, name was. It, and people were saying, oh, it's like this fucking white supremacist team. Yeah, victory for white supremacy, <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, I saw that hashtag on Twitter. Yeah. But in regards to Beyonce and Adele, yes. is it so impossible? Is it completely implausible that maybe Adele's album was a bit better? I don't know. The mic, the mic can't pick up my shrug, so I'm going to say I don't know. Um, I mean, I personally when... preferred Beyonce's music. Like I say, a little bit more upbeat, a bit more fast tempo. Lemonade, right? When it came out, you could not look anywhere without seeing Beyonce's face on a magazine cover or on a TV screen. You couldn't yeah. turn on the radio without hearing it. It was so massively celebrated at the time that and... maybe that went against it. And the other interesting thing, maybe people expected it to win because it was quite a worthy album. Now you see... The title is Lemonade. You know the saying, um, what do you do if life gives you lemons? Yeah, you turn it into lemonade. You make yeah, lemonade. Yeah. And so like... The, do you the, think the Beyonce way... was handed lemons? No. Be real. The way they, the way they um, actually talked about the album and marketed it, and in the months after its release, people actually said this tackles a lot of the current themes faced by like, you know, a young black woman in America. This, this... In what way? just challenges of society and privilege i'm i'm white male privilege so i don't know but <laughs> apparently it's it's harder and it's even if it was in a superficial way that's what it was tied to so when it didn't win people saw that as a bit of a up yours to that message as well maybe so it's sort of understandable some of the ire yeah whether it's right is another question altogether it was also marketed as a video album as well mm -hmm. rather as opposed to just straight up album yeah and i mean yeah there's always that argument of like do you can consider album artwork as well when you're considering best album. Mm. But I think the fact that she marketed it as a video album, that kind of went against it as well. It's that kind of like, you know what, let MTV handle that one and give awards out for it. Yeah, well, they've got the VMAs, don't they? Yeah. Anyway, enough excuse making for the Grammys racism by me. But that's the thing, you see, I think they weren't racist because they didn't consider race as part of their determination well then why can't beyonce ever win a best album just try harder next year beyonce <laughs> take off more clothes i don't know have more babies tell me but that's like do we not celebrate beyonce enough already she's very celebrated thinking about it. Well, no, i don't think she has to worry though right because of this controversy next year yeah they'll give she's her gonna every get, award yeah, she's going to get lifetime achievement award she'll even win the best heavy metal award next year <laughs> But they'll make a new award called the Beyonce Knowles Award for Excellence. And she'll be able to give it to her. She'll get the first one. <laughs>
feel like when it comes to award ceremonies, we've reached both peak obnoxiousness and peak farce at the same time. Did you see the uh, CeeLo Green outfit? I did. The all gold? I did. But he's, he's, he's... What the fuck? One person on the internet wrote, he looked like an outraged Ferrero Rocher. <laughs> <laughs> he's well known for painting himself funny colours. I mean, they all do it at the award ceremonies. They all wear something a bit wacky. Katy yeah. Perry, I remember, looked a bit weird. She always looks weird, that girl. <laughs> so, I mean, on the one hand, you've got the desperate need of celebrities to stand out in ever more ridiculous clothing and attire. On the other hand, you've got the meandering, sanctimonious acceptance speeches that are becoming more and more political. More and more like political stump speeches, you know, as though they're running yeah. for office. Like, yeah. Meryl Streep, why has she not run for office? She could have become the president. <laughs> She'd have beat Trump and Hillary. Yeah, it's like, why don't you just get into politics? But the thing is, you get the feeling they don't really want to get into politics. They just want to be popular. They want to hear the applause, you know, call and response, isn't it? I think this started, this all started with uh, Marlon Brando. I mean, his little... Do you remember? uh, Native American girl, who who turned out not to be Native American in the end. (laughs) I was thinking she didn't look 100% Cherokee or... She might have been a a bit native, who knows? Let's have a look. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and the Godfather, Miss Shashin Littlefeather. So a kind of Hispanic slash Indian looking woman is coming up with pigtails to accept the award on Marlon Brando's behalf. Hello, my name is Sashin Littlefeather. I'm Apache and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards, that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry Excuse me. Let us speak. Let us speak. People are booing, though, because they don't expect it. Yeah, and this they, is brand new. This is, you they know just expected a nice night out, a bit of a drink. They wanted to see Marlon Brando. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon the seat. This thing, she is being exceptionally polite. And She's her, being really nice about it. And her native dress is exceptionally sparkly as well. It's not like a traditional Native American dress. It's like an Oscars version. In fairness to Marlon Brando, this was like actually related to Hollywood. It was in the context of how Hollywood treats certain demographics. It's in industry. At least it was related. Yes. Yeah, there's there's sort of like soft versions where people will talk about whales, the animals, not the country, or the ice caps. They're not all bad. Look at um, Aston Kutchner was, was yeah. in the news. Child this week. trafficking. Yeah, he, he was in the court talking about child trafficking. He hadn't. He wasn't. He wasn't in trouble. I was in for front it. of Congress. I think. Yeah, yeah, he was. He was. Um, you know, he in his day job, as he called it. He, well, he's he, a shit actor, isn't he? He runs uh, probably better off doing something else. <laughs> yeah, he, he runs a a company that that sort of helps these children and tracks down the trackers. So someone like that using his celebrity to get that message out that isn't very popular. That is a good thing. If they're going to talk about something, talk about something more worthy rather than a, a battle that's already been lost, like the election. When they, I don't mind when they do like something for a specific cause. 
like a charitable cause. Yeah. That's totally fine because they're just raising awareness. They're giving a platform mm, to a, mm. a certain charity that maybe people haven't heard of before. Yeah. But I'll tell you this. If it affected the takings for their movie or their employability... they dropped that charity. So, obviously, some, some, some actors might have political leanings in, in other directions, and they'll never speak about them. I know recently James Woods, he said he's never going to work again. because He's he, pro-Trump. Yeah, and he's someone you used to see a lot around, but apparently not so much now. There is, no, a, there what is, was the last thing you saw James Woods in? Uh, Videodrome. <laughs> that was like 1983 or something. I know, something. but that's the last thing I watched with him. The last one I remember was the vampire one. You remember? No. Anyway, I'm trying to find Ashton Kutcher, but this is like 15 minutes. We'll give it a go. I'm here today to fight human trafficking and the sexual exploitation of children. My day job is as the chairman and the co-founder of Thorn. We build software to fight human trafficking and the sexual exploitation of children. And that's our core mission. My other day job is that of the father of two, a two-month-old and a two-year-old. And as part of that job that I take very seriously, I believe that it is my effort to defend their right to pursue happiness and to ensure a society and government that defends it as well. As part of my anti-trafficking work, I've met victims that have been trafficked from Mexico, victims in New York and New Jersey and all across our country. Yeah, you get the point there. But I I was thinking... um... Obviously, these celebrities, they, they, have, they lead wonderful lives. But I was thinking about it, and I do think, and I've seen this in a lot of the sort of super rich and celebrities, where sometimes they can have a sort of slightly guilty mindset. They have what I'd describe as survivor's guilt. Mm. They sort of look at normal people, and they realise that the average person's life is pretty miserable. They never really get to fulfill their dreams. A lot of them, they probably look around and they probably think, oh shit, I'm actually really lucky because I can actually fulfill my dreams and live the life I want. Because they came from a poor background. Yeah. They, they were new money. They were newly rich. Yeah. And so, so they think, how can I sort, you know, people would, people must hate me because I've got such an easy life compared to them. What can I do to sort of tip the, the balance back? I've got to be a really nice person. This is what everyone says when Meryl Streep opens her mouth. It's like, oh, listen, Meryl, you're so rich. How come you don't do more? Blah, blah, blah. Do you know what I mean? But she probably, I imagine over the course of like the last 20 years, she's probably raised a lot of money for charity. Well, look at when George Michael, after George Michael died, all these stories came out that never got publicity at the time because he demanded they didn't get publicity, where he was just doling out thousands of pounds to people. It's really easy to always fall into the trap. Because like you say, it's the uh, the award ceremonies, they become homogenized. It's always the same routine. Yeah. It's always this kind of fake sanctimonious pretentiousness when someone goes up there and you know you know the voice apart from the presenter though because now the presenter has to be like a ricky gervais a comedian basically yeah now now the presenter has to be someone who breaks the fourth wall and takes the piss you know the voice that fake husky breathless kind of oh and the people across the world you know oh there's such (laughs) suffering out there i just kind of hate the way people who view themselves as artists talk sometimes yeah it's, uh, I don't it's like, easy to hate them. I don't like the dramatic pacing they use, where they'll suddenly stop mid-flow just to do a dramatic pause, gain your attention for that extra. They're working second. the room. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, um, I think people kind of naturally find award ceremonies obnoxious just because, by their nature, they're self-congratulatory. It's yeah. people in an industry celebrating themselves within that industry, mm. and every industry does it. It's too easily predictable. You know that someone's going to dress like an idiot. They're going to ask, you know, as they come down the red carpet. I like that, those, Yeah, but the TV show, the talking heads, they're going to ask the same banal questions, getting the same asinine answers. Yeah. 
What are you wearing? How was it? How was it in that film with working with Kevin Hart? Kevin Hart is great. He's really funny. Did you know he's short? I suppose. I suppose some people like like it because they feel like it's a chance to see celebrities interact in the wild. You know, because we're used to seeing them playing roles on screen, separated in films and it might be fun to see them just mingling together but didn't adele didn't adele like break her award and say oh you know beyonce should have got this so adele became kanye west this year this is like everyone does this the whole like (laughs) oh i don't deserve this award look at oh look at all the other nominees they were so much more deserved. everyone does that Mm. i know some people are trying to twist that as like oh she knew they were going to accuse her of racism she didn't know it's like everybody does it when they win an award now Gives it to Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> Beyonce should have won this. <laughs> As always at the Tom, Dick and Homan show, we like to ask the questions most other podcasts shy away from, either due to fear or at risk of sounding like dreaded white nationalists. To that end, two white boys are about to ask the question, has multiculturalism failed? So recently, numerous heads of state have been openly questioning has multiculturalism failed, including Nicolas Sarkozy, David Cameron, Angela Merkel. So it's almost like the orthodoxy is dying away. They're just being populist. But it's an issue that's been bubbling under for such a long time. From my perspective, I'd expect a, a, a leader to want to keep their nation on an even kill and and have a multicultural society where everyone gets along because that that's my definition of multiculturalism is a society where everyone is treated equally everyone sees each other equally you bring up a good point there what's what is the definition of multiculturalism i mean if you go looking for the definition of a multicultural country what does that mean literally all it means is you have people from different ethnic cultures ethnic backgrounds maybe perhaps even a different country of birth and they all live in the same country under the same government with the same laws that apply universally across the board they all participate in the same elections you know what i mean and if you look for the definition of what a multiracial country is mm. it's exactly the same thing but with one extra proviso which is that there's an impetus there's a push for integration for new arriving immigrants to integrate into the host culture right? okay that's so, the difference between multicultural and multiracial country. So Germany, for example. Germany historically has been multiracial. Yeah. Like Angela Merkel hasn't been a supporter of multiculturalism. Oh, by the way, yeah, we asked, like, oh, hey, we said uh, head of states are asking, has it failed? Basically, they've come to the conclusion that, yeah, it has. Yeah. We should point that out. Which is why they're asking the question. Bring closure to that. Some people would have been sat there thinking, like, oh, well, what, 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 what is it? <laughs> <laughs> they think it is failing. But... That's my point of multicultural versus multiracial. Germany, Angela Merkel hasn't been pro-multicultural, having a multicultural country for a long time. She's pro-multiracial where there's an effort, there's like a concerted effort by the government to heavily persuade new arriving immigrants to integrate into German culture, learn the German language, respect the German ways of doing things. Yeah, go to Oktoberfest, Yeah, eat your bratwurst. Feel guilty about World War Two. <laughs> Maybe for not much longer, though. Memories fade. That's the thing. People people are down a lot. They're saying our society's getting more racist and uh, less accepting. Um, even if it is, I still think we're leagues ahead of 
of almost that every other nothing, country in the world. That has nothing to do with it, though. It no, doesn't matter if there are racists in the country or not. That doesn't determine whether it's multicultural or multiracial. Okay, okay. Do you know what I mean? That's see what true. I mean, though? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it, it, so, is, it is an ism, though, as well, isn't it? Multiculturalism, it can be like a political leaning well, or a belief. The difference, the difference is you have a multicultural country, which just simply means nothing more than people from different ethnic backgrounds live in the same country. Uh, like you say, multiculturalism, or the ism at the end there gives it away that this is an ideology rather than a statement of observation. Multiculturalism, this is a word that entered British political lexicon for the average Brit, basically. I would say in the late 90s with uh, New Labour, they were big pressures of multiculturalism. That's when it entered my lexicon. Yeah. And uh, basically what they did, New Labour, was they attached an element of mass immigration to the idea of having a multicultural society. So that becomes part of multiculturalism, the ideology, is being pro-mass immigration. So you can make a country that's already multicultural more multicultural by you can getting make it, more cultures no. in there. No. What I'm Get saying more is cultures in there. you can make it more of a multiculturalist country. Mm, yeah. So Britain technically is a multicultural country, right? But it's not a multiculturalist. Well, it is now a multiculturalist country. But people, you hear people say, oh, Britain's always been multicultural. Correct. There's always been people with different ethnic backgrounds in Britain. Mm. But Britain hasn't always been multiculturalist. It was previously multiracialist. Multiculturalism didn't enter Britain until the, it's a late 20th century invention. Okay. I mean, I remember a girl saying to me once, oh, the, the uh, Viking invaders proves that Britain has always been multiculturalist. No, no, it doesn't. Britain's always, yeah, Britain's history was multiple invasions, you know, these islands. It's an island, The ancient yeah. history. So New Labour introduced multiculturalism, where they've attached an element of being pro-mass immigration. Now, they did that. They wanted to open the floodgates, well, as they, is the cliché phrase, well, on immigration. It's, you say cliché phrase, but I think with the passing of time, and thanks to the internet and uh, data, it can actually be conclusively proved that they deliberately just let the immigration be a free-for-all it was state policy yeah 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 but that mandelson unashamedly admitted, yeah. even mandelson admitted that a couple of years ago yeah. at the time they didn't make out that they were literally just well, look, leaving the, the door open the numbers exploded there's no way you could hide it yeah it was a state policy of being pro mass immigration now mass immigration has more to do with trying to tackle an aging demographic problem than anything else if you're an altruist what if you're altruistic... If altruistic? A-L-T-R-U... Okay, right, sorry. If you've I got, thought you said ultra. <laughs> if, you, if you've got good intentions, then yeah. Yeah, the best. The very best of intentions. That's like a nice way of justifying it. You could say it was a way for large corporations to get, you know, cheap labour to drive down wages. Because people from Eastern Europe are happy to, to work for a third of, third of the price. Well, maybe not a third. But <laughs> well, it was witnessed in the building trade. Yeah, I mean, they are. it is suppressing wages slightly. But so, like I say, there's everyone there's, says there's, it's there's, not suppressing it at all, which is wrong. So there's positive intentions for doing it, and there's also negative intentions for doing it. We know from uh, Labour MP Andrew Nether a leaked email of his mm. that the idea, New Labour's idea, was you would permanently change the demographic makeup of Britain. Well, it's it's well established thing. It's um, to, to secure a solid block of votes in an area of the country. Yeah, they thought they were going to block out the Tories forever. So I would say that the intention of forever changing Britain's demographic makeup. That would be part of multiculturalism, the yes. ide ideology. Yes. There's still an added element that we haven't talked about yet. An added component of yeah. multiculturalism, in my opinion, is the idea of cultural relativism. 
what my brain is already on the limits of expansion with this conversation what what is this syllable packed word you throw before me cultural relativism the idea that you can't say any culture is superior to another you one culture can't judge another culture by its own standards things like that you can't say that your culture is better than another culture no well that goes as red that's just being polite isn't it Mm, it's more an ideological belief that is part of multiculturalism the ideology i think it's basically it's like at the root of multiculturalism is the idea of cultural relativism because you're like i say the difference between multiculturalism and multiracialism is multiracialism there's an effort and a focus put on integration and assimilation if you will whereas multiculturalism that's absent you just see the difference and what what's there in its place nothing nothing so it's just Just whatever culture you came from you arrive with okay okay so we've we noticed just in london you on on one street you'll see like a a mosque uh, a polsky polsky sklep i can't pronounce it you know the the iranian restaurant what's that then what's that make us you can have that under either a multiracial or a multicultural society okay so for me you're overcomplicating it it's just basic manners and politeness it's like you don't say that your culture is better than someone else's culture. If you're, you can't it, say it, if, it's not. If you're oh, on I'm, holiday, I'm restraining okay. from saying okay. it. You cannot say it under cultural if, relativism. If, if you're if you're on holiday and you know you get chatting with someone and they're friendly and they invite you back to their house for for like a lunch or something and they go, oh, here's like the traditional food and the, and you go, oh, this is fucking shit. This is rubbish. It's much better what I have in my country. Blah blah blah. I you, don't know. You wouldn't that's do just, that. That's being a dick. Yeah. Exactly. I'm talking so a little I mean. bit, a little bit deeper than I don't like curry. How does that? <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean? so that's what I need though. I need that. How, how does that express itself? Anjum Chowdhury. Do you know who Anjum Chowdhury is? Yes, Islamist preacher, hate preacher, as it were. Okay, he lived off of the fat of what British liberalism. He sung the praises of living off benefits. The state, yeah, you're right. The state pays basically for his family. Yeah. Feeds his family, clothes his family, yeah. provides them a roof. He doesn't, he can't provide for his family at all. But anyway, his point is Islamism is so much superior to British culture, British values, and Islamic identity is superior to a British identity, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Now, multiculturalists can't, by definition, cannot say anything to that. They can't say, oh, you're wrong, actually. British culture is better than Islamism. They can't mm-hmm. say that because they're cultural relativists. Oh. So that's interesting, isn't it? But look, try and explain this in the way of um, a distinction would be, do you know how popular it is today to say, make statements like, I'm a global citizen, Britain has no values, there is no such thing as British culture, no such thing as British values. Have you not noticed that? No. I think the people who say that believe that. I don't doubt the sincerity of their belief. Yeah, but I think there's loads of people. I just think they're wrong. I think they're wrong, yeah. There's loads of British values, like taking the piss being a reverend those sort of things i like getting drunk yeah <laughs> british drinking culture it's still it's still a culture isn't it i'd say british values last are more. night last night of the proms uh damn busters how about uh, liberalism <laughs> anyway yeah i think um andam chowdhury is what would you say to andam chowdhury go fuck yourself you fucking bastard i'm no cultural relativist well, no, just because I know what other stuff he said and how he said that he, like, deliberately lifts off benefits because it's a way of screwing over the government, which is really out of order. A bit hypocritical. Because those benefits but could be used to pay for baby incubators. It's part of our British values. potholes. Hmm? It's part of our British values to what? 
Yeah. We tolerate that. We tolerated it for years. We're, we're the most tolerant he got done, country. Um, he got done for radicalizing, you know, being a hate preacher, mm-hmm. inciting violence. Mm-hmm. We didn't do him because he was a bum. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> but a constant criticism against multiculturalism is that it's a failure because it doesn't lead to further integration of newly arriving immigrants. But that's not a tenet of multiculturalism anyway. The idea is you don't care if there's integration or assimilation or not. Like what's happening there is that multiracialism is sort of an idea and a word that's dropped out of our lexicon and been supplanted by multiculturalism. Yeah. And people are conflating the two inadvertently. What about the notion of national identity? I think national identity is something that we're losing and it's something that's kind of unfairly attributed to multiculturalism. Right. Well, well, I was thinking that national identity is something that's just naturally dying out because the world is getting more interconnected and internet travel, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about that. And we're all dressing the same. We're all sort of... No, no, man. It's like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, well, this is what we've lost. Everything is really surface level cheap. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, it's it's the food you eat. It's the clothes you wear. Okay. No, it's more than that. It's how you think. It's your worldview. How you interact with each other is much deeper than just everyone wears caps nowadays. (laughs) But the interesting thing is like, because society has become more multicultural... It's like you could say a lot of these values you'd naturally, traditionally inherit from your parents, but say like on one side of my family it's Irish, the other side it's English. So maybe there's two different values going into me there. That's been the case for like a thousand years in Britain. (laughs) So I think there's been a bit of a resurgence in the notion of that we should actually try and reinvigorate a national identity, which is something that I agree with. This is a more, a little bit of a kind of conservative Tory position of mine, but here's David Cameron on this subject. It's drawn from the British experience, but I believe there are general lessons for us all. In the UK, some young men find it hard to identify with the traditional Islam practiced at home by their parents when, when transplanted to modern Western countries. But these young men also find it hard to identify with Britain too, because we've allowed the weakening of our collective identity. Under the doctrine of state multiculturalism, we've encouraged different cultures to live separate lives apart from each other and apart from the mainstream. We fail to provide a vision of society to which they feel they want to belong. The failure, for instance, of some to confront the horrors of forced marriage is a case in point. This hands-off tolerance has only served to reinforce the sense that not enough is shared. And this all leaves some young Muslims feeling rootless. And the search for something to belong to and something to believe in can lead them to this extremist ideology. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, basically, I think what David Cameron's getting at there, are shared values required? Is integration required in order to have a national identity, a shared identity amongst the whole populace? Well, it seems like an inevitable necessity now. We've already got the situation, so yeah, they have to deal with it. Like ghettoized. They can't, yeah, they can't turn back time. You know, they left it for so long during the nineties, and uh, you know, it's just bore, bore fruit. Deal with the the harvest. Yeah, I mean, you don't really want to end up like France, because I mean, I, I can't remember what episode it was, but Hyman and I talked about how the the way the French tried to deal with what they call the Muslim ghetto problem, and basically they tried the stick. And then they tried a little bit more of the stick and then more of the stick and then a little bit of carrot and then they got pissed off and the carrot didn't work and they tried more of the stick. Mm. And it's, it's culminated in riots in Paris this week. Oh my God, yeah. Over a 
policeman sticking his baton up some guy's arsehole. Accidentally, apparently. <laughs> that, yeah, was the, yeah. that was their claim by the police, wasn't it? It's happened by accident. Yeah. Tactical takedown. But what David Cameron's getting at there, he's advocating a multiracialism by saying we need to focus on getting a shared national identity, which by extension basically means integration, assimilation. And that's basically, uh, that's been Germany's position from day one. But creepingly, Western Hemisphere has been getting more and more multiculturalist. Even in America, is creepingly becoming more and more multiculturalist. Well, now that we've got President Trump, maybe not so much. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it seems like there's, uh, we're seeing multiculturalists and multiracialist butt heads at the moment. A clash of ideologies. Okay, so that's an easy way for me to understand the difference. It's finally, <laughs> finally, I can actually visualize it. I've got it now. I've got it. What goes against multiracialism, though, is a zealous fear of white nationalism. We have this fear, especially in England, of like any sort of nationalistic sentiment becoming white nationalism. Yeah. You don't really get that in Scotland, though. Scotland has a more civic nationalism. Yeah, but Scotland's diverse. It's, uh, Scotland's ethnic diversity is completely You're minute. trying to say they're like 90% white kind of thing? 98% white. But they have a national identity, but it's not rooted... It's not so. rooted in white skin. What is this rooted in haggis and cabers tossing? A shared culture, shared Thist- identity, shared values. Do you have any fears about white nationalism? I mean, it's been a while since the BNP have been on the scene. Do you know something? In this country, again, I say people have all these fears about white nationalism, but in this country, every time it's reared its tiny little ugly head, it's been stomped down with tremendous force. You know, fa- famously in the East End, the Cable Street marches, where all the... Um, People of the, area. the black shirts tried to come out. Yeah, they just tried to march through the area, and all the all the locals just teamed up and said, "Okay, was it Mosley." Yeah, it was like a, you know, it ends here at Cable Street. You're not going to go any further. We don't like that sort of thing over here. That's part of our national identity. I mean, the trick is, and this is something you said, I think, on like episode one of this podcast, <laughs> but you were saying like uh, nature abhors a vacuum. Yeah, there's a vacuum when it comes to share nationalism national identity there's a vacuum there when it comes particularly to england yeah but at these something is going to occupy that space yes now if it's not a civic nationalism based on shared values identities liberal values hopefully more than anything else and a lack of cultural relativism but if it's based more on civic nationalism you've if that's occupying that space then white nationalism can't occupy it so that's how you deal. I don't think white nationalism in Britain, I agree with you, it's not... It's never been a thing. It's not really a big problem. It's more of an Eastern yeah. Europe issue. So we asked the question, has multiculturalism failed? Your answer, Tim? No. Why? Because we're not all murdering each other in the streets, eating each other's brains. Pretty low bar there. Well, that's <laughs> As long as there isn't total societal collapse, yeah, it's fine. I think multiculturalism, it hasn't failed. Because by definition, it's just being pro-mass immigration. And Which, Britain is very pro... Well, I mean, it's not pro It's It's a country that has high levels of net immigration yeah. year on year. And we, we allow people to express their cultures here. Like I say, you, you, we allow people to open shops and mosques and all sorts. But has multiculturalism failed? I'm saying no. I think really what's happening is there's a miscommunication whereby people are pro-multiracialism but don't actually really quite know, they don't know of that term or that idea, even though it's actually what they kind of believe and what they're advocating. And then you've got the multiculturalists who have had their way for the last 20, 25 years. So maybe it is failing in the sense that multiracialism is making a comeback. 
I don't know. What do you think? I don't think it's failing. You see, you go back to the start of the conversation. We, we talked about uh, Merkel and Cameron talking, you know, bringing up the conversation that it's failed. Why? Why did they do that? I think it's like they... They think it's because integration doesn't work with multiculturalism, yeah. but it's not supposed to. Maybe multiculturalism will finally have succeeded in 500 years when everyone is completely racially mixed and we have just one culture of MTV or something. I don't know. I don't see how interracial mixing, which I'm not against, obviously, but... It's great. I don't see how it's going to affect anti-mass immigration sentiments in any way. Like people are still going to be alarmed when it's like net migration figure hits 500,000 plus a year. It's still going to be alarming no matter what skin color people are. Yeah, well, that, well that's, that's when you get into the, the issue of uh, services and, you know, school spaces, GP appointments, blah, blah, blah. We mentioned at the beginning the floodgates opening. Yeah. It's a cliche term, but I think you're right. It's an apt term. But obviously the thing about floodgates is once you've opened it, you can't shut the gate until all the water's pass through yes what if it never stops passing through well it does eventually can you sh- can you put the cat back in the bag the we, horse back in the stable we spoke about this and the importance of spreading the population over this island because if they're too concentrated no because you know if they're all in one place it will tilt up <laughs> yeah and scotland would be too close to the sun yeah yeah so like i say <laughs> maybe we have to be a bit careful because it, it, it would sink, would it sink eventually there just wouldn't be enough room there wouldn't be enough room on the tube or the bus official answer official answer to the question sitting on the fence kind of yes kind of no depends think- on your perspective really multiculturalism is a is a healthy thing but uh too much of a good thing is bad for you isn't it like vitamins Speaking of the dangers of white nationalism and the affiliated neo-Nazism, we, or just I, went to see a movie about Holocaust denier David Irving. What, the new Power Rangers? (laughs) What movie did I go see this week, Tim? Tom, you saw Denial. I, but I feel like I could say that in a more sombre way because it sounds like quite a sombre film. All right, go on then. Tom, you saw Denial. I say to you quite tastelessly that more women died on the back seat of Senator Edward Kennedy's car at Chappaquiddick than ever died in a gas chamber at Auschwitz. It is my pleasure to introduce Professor Deborah Lipstadt. Whatever the reasons that people become deniers, they often have an agenda which they won't admit to. Why do you continually denigrate the work of David Irving? You can have opinions about the Holocaust, but I won't meet with anyone who says the Holocaust didn't happen. Professor Lipstadt, I am that David Irving. And I've got a thousand dollars to give anyone who can show me a document that proves the Holocaust. I will not debate you, not here, not now, not because ever. Because you've well, it was Irving who took the suit out against her. Yeah. And he also sort of stormed one of her lectures. They sort of present him as a bit of a nutter. Well, but, he is. But does he sort of believe himself to be a champion of free speech? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So an adaptation of a book called History on Trial, My Day in Court with a Holocaust Denier. It's the story of Deborah Lipstadt, played by Rachel Weiss, an American historian specializing in the Holocaust. And uh, she got sued for libel by infamous Holocaust denier David Irving played by a uh, legendary British actor, Timothy Spall. And uh, David Irving, you might remember him. He was imprisoned in uh, Austria in 2006 for Holocaust denialism. 
But he was swiftly released and told, look, mate, just don't fucking ever come back. So, yeah, I mean, the film's premise is an interesting one. Obviously, it's a bit, uh, a bit heavy. True story. A bit sensitive. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it did happen. Everything happened as portrayed in the film, yes? Highly accurate. I mean, there's going to be... Including the Holocaust. That's a terrible joke to make. But it's pertinent to this film. It's very close to the book, the source material. Right. Even though I'm saying that, even though I haven't read it, but that's what I read about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on paper, you'd think the film would be ripe with tension and drama, but ultimately the film felt like it lacked any real oomph to it. It was kind of... Uh, you kind of knew he was guilty. <laughs> you know what I mean? well, it was in the news. It, you know, you sort of knew the ending if you were... Uh, yeah, but I mean, it didn't really... It tried to portray it as though, like, whoa, this, oh, this could be close. You don't know what... And he, not really. You kind of always knew which way it was going to go. It did, I found, it had a good, important subplot with an important message of always having to defend the truth relentlessly, even no matter how tiresome it is, you have to defend it from falsehoods because there's always going to be fraudsters and charlatans and someone's got to step up to the plate and fight them. So this guy had sort of made a career out of being a Holocaust denier. That was his gig. Yeah, he was um, a self-taught historian, yeah. David Irving. But he'd, he'd go around and give speeches and charge yeah. money for these speeches and in the books. In the 70s and 80s, he was basically just a kind of quirky, self-taught historian who's maybe a little bit too obsessed with Hitler. But he wasn't denying the Holocaust back then. But then suddenly, late 80s, early 90s, he started denying the Holocaust, started becoming a lot more kind of racist in his views. You uncover, they go, they go over it a little bit in the film where um, he read a book uh, by, I think, a German historian who is uh, maybe a little bit of a neo-Nazi sympathizer. And uh, he falsified some documents. And I think his name was Leuker. Mm-hmm. And David, once David Irving read this guy's book, he suddenly started becoming a Holocaust denier. But yeah, the film starts with uh, Deborah Lipstadt, Rachel Wise. She's delivering this lecture about the Holocaust. And uh, she becomes aware of David Irving at some point in the 90s. And uh, in her book, she mentions he's a liar and a falsifier of history. And David Irving then starts targeting her. And what he used to do, he and a bunch of his mates, his cronies, they would uh, attend someone's lecture. And then David Irving would stand up, make a big scene. But I'm David Irving and I'm... I deny the Holocaust. <laughs> no, but he's basically... He, he would do this little bullshit trick of, oh, I'll give money to anyone who can prove unequivocally... Okay. Like, I want a single document that proves a Holocaust. And it's like, you're, non, you're unlikely to get one single document. Do you know what I mean? He's playing a bit of a trick. Yeah. Oh, one single document to prove the Holocaust. That's not really... It's going to take probably thousands, <laughs> do you know what I mean, hmm. to really get to the bottom of it. So yeah, she writes, he's a liar. And so what David Irving does in response, he files a, a defamation lawsuit, but he files it in London, not in America. Because remember, she's an American historian. And the reason he does that is the libel laws in Britain work quite differently to how they work in America. You know the difference, Tim? I don't know anything about libel. So basically, in America, at all times, you've got the presumption of innocence. And I kind of, yeah, I agree with this. So say you are accused of defamation. Yeah. You are presumed innocent until proven guilty. Right. In Britain, despite most of other laws working that way, the same as America, for some reason, libel laws are different in the UK. Where actually, if you're accused of wrongdoing, you have to prove your innocence. Yeah. So Deborah Lipstadt, she's informed by, uh, it's her publisher was Penguin Books, who obviously have a British arm. And their lawyers call her out and say, listen, you should just settle. This is what this guy does. He comes after specific individuals, makes a frivolous lawsuit claim. And uh, basically, he wants to drag it out in court as long as possible, costs as much money as possible. He gets as much publicity out of it as he possibly wants. It's best to just settle. 
but she's a very principled woman. And no, she wasn't a daughter. I was going to say she was a daughter of a Holocaust survivor, but I don't think she is. <laughs> she's a time traveler. But, yeah. You know, her faith, her Jewish faith, her Jewish heritage. Right. She wants to fight this. Mm-hmm. So she makes like a kind of heroic call, really, of saying, no, actually, I'm going to go to court. I'm going to fight the guy, even though it's kind of um, somewhat stacked in his favor that she's got to prove her innocence. Irving's just sent us notice of a suit to be filed in the High Court. Miss Lipstadt has done very real damage to my professional existence. What did you say about him? I think I called him a liar and falsifier of history. You better get yourself lawyered up. A man accuses you of something and it's your job to prove he's wrong? In the US, there's a presumption of innocence. Yeah, not in the UK. This case is happening to you, but it's not about you. Auschwitz is at the very centre of Holocaust belief, so it's at the very centre of Holocaust denial. There were no gas chambers anywhere at Auschwitz. Here is one of the largest killing machines in human history. You know what it is, it's how we prove what it is. What if we lose? Suddenly it becomes acceptable to say the Holocaust didn't happen. Because basically... It's a, it's a courtroom drama, so it's going to be character-driven. They go to Auschwitz to gather forensic evidence, as much forensic evidence as they possibly can. Mm. And the reason they're doing that is, like, that's the kind of subplot of the film that actually maintained my interest, yeah. was the idea of defending the truth, going the extra mile, doing a really rigorous and thorough job. The acting in this film was absolutely top class. Rachel Weisz gave a really good performance, However, she's kind of let down by the screenplay a little bit. Well, I mean, what could the screenplay do? You kind of have to stick to the history because uh, her lawyers, she wants to go up on the stand. Problem is David Irving has decided to represent himself. So he's going to be, he doesn't have a lawyer. And so Deborah Lipstadt's Rachel Weiss's lawyers, they advise, no, you can't go on the stand because that's what David Irving wants. He wants to antagonize you and question your integrity. Mm. Our plan is we're going to make it only about him like you're going to be practically irrelevant to the trial it's just going to be about david irving and what a lying sack of shit he is basically okay. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? so she doesn't get a chance to sort of speak against him in court too much no but she's already done the heroic move of actually saying no i'm not going to settle out of court yeah i'm going to take him on and there's a little bit of drama there's a bit of tension there where she obviously she wants to go on the stand she wants the uh, the holocaust survivor's voice that she kind of represents in a right. way to be heard it's that conflict between there's the emotional argument and then there's the cold, objective, legal argument. And Tom Wilkinson, another British actor, he plays Richard Rampton QC. And so he's doing all the talking to the judge. Right? Right. And so like the second half of the film, because Rachel Weiss is told, no, you're not going on a stand. She's kind of left to just sit in the courtroom, not okay. really doing much. Okay. And it kind of just transfers to Tom Wilkinson. I mean, she was basically relegated to just giving kind of shocked reactions to like what David Irving was saying and like looking at the judge, like, you know, come on, you can't be buying this, you know. But Tom Wilkinson was brilliant. Like I say, Timothy Spall as David Irving gave an amazing performance, dangerously good to the point where like I'm kind of worried for him. If someone sees this film and they're a little bit loopy <laughs> and they see him in the street. Oh, right. Is David Irving still alive in real life? I think so, yeah. I wonder if he'll still like, around, but he's I, I, kind of obscure now. I wonder if he'll take the filmmakers to court over this film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably, a, yeah. a chance at the limelight. I mean, over the course of the film, it's you kind of get the impression he is completely deluded. Supposedly, he went on TV after the trial and basically made out that he won. I mean, his performance was so good. It wasn't one-dimensional at all. He's not just 100% pure evil. Yeah. Because he's got like a bit of a messianic complex going on as well. Okay. Where he thinks he's like this great revealer of truth. Yeah. And he's pulling the wall up from over people's eyes. Truth's an addictive drug. He almost, you almost feel a little bit of sympathy for him. Just in the fact that he, 
you get the impression he's almost kind of sincere in what he believes. Mm. And that was like the kind of the crucial point of the film, what it all kind of came down to. Is he portrayed as a racist? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's is, several... he a, is he a racist? I would say so. So that yeah. was really part of his motivation. Yeah. Yeah. They established that over the course of the trial. Uh-huh. And there's uh-huh. based, there's several moments where they've got video footage of him speaking at conferences where he's not really aware he's being recorded. So he's making very kind of candid racist statements in front of a room of like neo-Nazis and white nationalists. The word denial is particularly evil. Well, freedom of speech means you can say whatever you want. The phrase is a poison to which there is no antidote. What you can't do is lie and expect not to be accountable for it. There are no holes in that roof. Therefore, there never were any gas chambers. No holes, no holocaust. He wanted a catchy phrase. He's got it. Where's the evidence? Where's the proof? Not all opinions are equal. But I'm not a racist. The earth is round, the ice caps are melting, and Elvis is not alive. I'm not attacking freedom of speech. I've been defending my right to stand up against someone who wants to pervert the truth. So would you recommend it? Well... Like I say, on paper, you think this is, woo, this is going to be right with tension. Purely, there's, yeah, there's, surely there's a ton of drama involved in this. And the answer is like, not really. It's kind of almost, it's a little bit dissatisfying. Okay. Like, oh, what's the judge? What verdict is the judge going to come to? You know, you know, he's going to lose. You don't even really have to know who David Irving is. Just, just watching the film. He's a baddie. He's going down. I'll give him, they tried, they tried to kind of introduce some tension and drama there. But there wasn't really. I'd say it's well paced, though. Yeah. Um, in terms of cinematography, not a hell of a lot going on. It was a kind of a bit high budget BBC drama. Mm. I suppose you don't want too many flashy camera moves on a subject like that. How long is it? Is it a long film or just a... about hour forty five? Okay, I'd say so it doesn't like doesn't overstay its welcome. I mean, I'd recommend the film on the basis of the strong acting performances in what is ultimately a character driven film. And of course, like I say, the subplot serves as a good reminder of why it's important to always defend the truth, no matter how tiresome, no matter how much you think you're just retreading the same shit. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Tom, Dick and Hyman show. Tim, thank you once again. Thanks. That was a tough show stretch my brain to the max, which is quite easy to do really hopefully it wasn't a bunch of incoherent rambling until next time bye bye yes all of this is is uh, is I think going to have to be confronted by those of us who um, began by thinking that a multicultural multi-ethnic multi-religious society was good idea and are now being uh, put in the position where its values, so to speak, are being negated, mutated and turned against us, so that all religions have to be treated with equal respect, not just with equal consideration, but they, they all deserve a kind of protection, the exact opposite of what's meant by a proper multicultural society where everything can be discussed and anyone can take part in the conversation.